Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. This is part two of a two-part interview with Dan Barber. For part one, check our archives at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to Chef Story, and today I'm interviewing Dan Barber at Stone Barns. And uh, for those of you who don't know Dan, uh, he's won every award. Um, he's he's one of the most uh, revered chefs, and not just in chefdom, because Time Magazine picked him as one of the most influential, 100 most influential people in the world. Um, and he truly is a visionary leading the way. So we're, we're going to be exploring some of those things right now. Um, well, so what? I should ask you: Did that, is that clear? Do, does that clear up the third plate a little bit? Well, you know, I think that it, it you're using the third plate as a shield, as opposed to it, and a good shield, yeah. as opposed to a plate, because I think the third plate is about changing the way we compose the plate. Yeah, that's number one. Yeah, and number two is um, challenging everyone. Uh, to figure out what it is we should be eating. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot going on on that plate. Yeah, it's, it it's a, a metaphor and, for a lot. Right. It's true. But you know what? Yeah. It, it's a singular thing, though, the third plate. It's a plate. You're not saying plates. And so it's individual responsibility. Yeah. It's corporate responsibility. Yeah. And if you are someone who feeds other people and you have the ability... You're asking them to take up a responsibility challenge and saying, "Just want to make, but what is what is what should you be making um, to be a responsible steward, and how do you make that delicious?" So you've kind of turned it on its head. Yeah, I think cooking and gastronomy is a big part of this. We forget that in the whole drive towards sustainability, whatever that means for whoever is speaking about it. We talk about farming. We talk about the responsibility of the chefs and the eaters, but we really don't talk about cooking itself and well, how cooking overboiled is. kale is disgusting right, right. but when you put it in the hands of a good cook yeah. Yeah. It, it becomes palatable and people yeah. will eat it that's what you know Thomas Keller in the research book I just read his introduction to the French Laundry Cookbook and he says something very simple but, but very true which is um, you know the cooking of a steak is really heating a piece of protein Tripe, cooking tripe, is a transformative act. And, and that's where the chef comes into play here. And what every chef I know, anybody who's worth their, every chef I know, is much more interested in cooking tripe than in cooking steak. It's more flavorful in the end. Mm-hmm. And it's more challenging. It's a craft mm-hmm. to, to produce that. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is look at more cooking to make these things that are, on the face of it, not as uh, delicious or as coveted. Um, and tripe and you know steak, um, uh, you know, uh, is 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 the coveted piece. The tripe is the part that we as chefs need to challenge ourselves to make delicious, and that's the craft of cooking, and that's a big part in the movement towards sustainability. I think. Well, I, I think uh, all the new uh, ways of eating have been introduced. Kale, in, yeah. for example, have yeah. have been introduced by chefs. 
and cooking shows. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so sure. there, there's a huge role. I want to move to something else. Yeah. Controversial. Yeah. That I don't understand. Yeah. I want you to help me with. Come on. GMOs. Okay. All right. So I ask everybody, since you know I'm working with the Expo and the USA Pavilion, um, looking at what is going on in American food today, we cannot ignore that um, American uh, American industry is feeding the world with uh, GMO produced products. And what does that really mean? And I've been trying to research it myself. You know, and I, I can ask everyone, the person on the street, and they, they think for a minute and they go, it means a genetically modified organism. So I went deeper into that. And what does that mean? And so it's taking the DNA that we discovered in the 1970s and only discovered in the 1970s right. and said, you know, uh, everyone has uh, characteristics and it comes from this strand of DNA. Right. And now we have the ability in science to open up that strand and replace little bits of it. Right. So actually, if you put this in a larger picture... Um, in the 18th century, we started hybridization right. of man taking two seeds and putting them together. So right. we took a peach and a plum and we made a nectary. Right. And we played God in that sense. But in one way, we just sped up nature because that could have happened naturally exactly. in nature. Yeah. So we're not really, I think, distorting nature too or disturbing nature too much. We also have genetic mutations. And so, um, I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there is no genetically modified wheat yet grown in the United States. There's, it's not allowed. It's not allowed. But we do have corn and soy, and we've made them drought resistant because we've taken the drought gene from right. barley, right. and it's just from barley, nothing right. weirder than that, and we've put it into corn and uh, soy. Soy, yeah. Now, is that could have happened in nature with a genetic no, mutation? With a genetic mutation, could oh, it have weird. happened? And is it that? Is it? I actually don't know. I don't know that that's true. Uh, but it, let's it say true. we did this with wheat. All right. Yeah. Now with the with the drought, and, and you, we won't go into why there's a drought. Right. We rape the land. You know? yeah, yeah. But let's say there is a drought, or let's let's go into challenged parts of the world. Yeah. And if we're able to produce wheat to feed people. And it's only simply taking the barley gene. Is there anything wrong with that? Isn't it a responsibility to do that? Right. Well, my answer would be at the end of my book, where uh, I spent four years breeding a new variety of wheat. I'm going to show you a picture when we leave this interview. It's just being har- it was just harvested two days ago in the fields of just outside of Seattle. And I helped breed it. It's two varieties. One called Aragon Three from southern Spain, and one called Jones Fife from really from around here. We put them together, and we made we called Barber Wheat. We were doing this myself, and the, and the real hero of this book named Steve Jones is the wheat breeder. So we did this because we were selecting for flavor, mm-hmm. um, and we wanted a, a wheat. I wanted a wheat. And, in and this kitchen. was seed hybridization. This was taking two varieties of wheat and marrying them together. How'd you marry them? Well, wheat is what's called the perfect flower. So wheat has both male and female characteristics. So we demailed one and stuck together the pollen of so the other. So this isn't very natural. This is. This wouldn't happen in nature. Yes, it would. It oh, could. It, it, okay. could. It, it could. It could. And uh, 
would a Spanish variety meet a variety from the Hudson Valley or from you know from here? Not necessarily. We're doing something that one in a million could have happened, but yes, we're taking characters that we want and putting them together. We've always done, and yes. there's nothing wrong with that. Right. What's interesting to me is that the results right now are that this new wheat, barber wheat, requires about 80% less water than the conventional wheat. Now, why am I telling you that? Because you've raised the issue of water. But I, I was struck by it because I failed seventh grade biology, and I put together this wheat it took about five minutes, and we—I wasn't selecting it for water, uh, uh, you know, uh, for drought tolerance. That we just, I was totally uninterested in it. You're I couldn't have cared less if this thing sucked water out of the earth for the, oh, that I moment. Can't believe you yeah, just that for the moment, I was thinking about only getting the best tasting wheat. Yeah. And it just so happens that Aragon Three, this Spanish variety, evolved in a place where there's very little rain, so it has the genetic capability to grow and thrive with very, very little rainfall. Those genetics happened to be passed along into barber wheat. It was the father or the mother. It depends on So it happened on a genetic level. Sure. It happened on its own. All right. And so I did it. The difference between barber... Now, barber wheat... Is barber wheat as drought tolerant as the potential for a drought tolerant wheat? I don't know. I haven't begun to look into this. But all I know is I wasn't searching for it, and I was doing it, me. My point is these corporations that are, and again, I have nothing against corporations per se. I'm, I'm only saying that largely corporations who are investing a ton of money in this technology are then going to make you buy their wheat. Well, that's a different that's It's a different not a different thing. story. Let me, wait, wait, wait. All I'm saying, let's talk about the morality. Let's not talk about corporations but taking the... it's part of the, the morality. Because, we can get because, onto that later. Yeah. But my question is, how, if you're genetically playing, which you are because you've made it wheat tolerant, and we Because know, I'm crossing wheat with wheat. Your example is taking barley, or you're taking uh, actually a relatively non-obnoxious cross. Right. Because there are a lot of obnoxious crosses. You're taking yeah. a species right. that in nature would otherwise never cross. So a That's barley and we would never so never plum cross. and pear would never uh, plum, uh, you know, in the fruit, we, yeah. we're seeing. In the fruit world, I don't know how that works, so I can't <laughs> argue with that. I really do, I don't understand. What about a mule with a monkey and a horse? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but but that's something that happens. That, you know, in, in other words, you are playing God. You are? You, you are playing God when you're inserting a gene into an organism, into a plant, that would never in our world happen. Okay. Well, that's that, my problem what with about genetic stem modification. Cell, what about stem cell replacement in, in people? That's genetic modification. That is genetic do modification. You, do you but agree I'm with not, that? I do agree with that, but I'm not talking about feeding the world with stem cells wait, or wait, with babies no, no, that are, that are saved saying, from stem cells. I'm saying you would rather have yourself yeah. genetically modified than put a barley gene in wheat. Yes. So you think that that is... Yes, that because, is, and I'll tell you why. Because if I am genetically modified through stem cells, I'm not contagious to the rest of the population. In fact, if, if I sit next to you now, you don't become stem cells uh, uh, originated, right? I, in, How in, about your child? My child does. So, yes, so right. So you, you are populating... The world so, with and you've, you've been able to rid a disease, cerebral palsy, out of your genetic 
you're, 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 yeah, you're, you're really mixing metaphors, so it's hard to go down wait, that rabbit hole. No, because we're talking about food supply versus population supply. It's no, I'm just talking argument. about genetic modification. You are not talking about genetic. You're talking about genetic modification <laughs> on two very. You're mixing apples and oranges. So I don't know how. No, to, I'm, I'm just saying we're talking about genetic modification. Right. The in, idea in of and the idea of inserting a foreign gene into a DNA structure from the from the human perspective, I don't have a problem with. But from the food supply, I have a problem with it because it's not, it would not happen in nature. We don't know the long-term effects of that. So my argument... What about with a person? We don't know the long-term effects of that either. Well, what are we going to do? Explode? When I don't... I, you're saving, you're, you're talking about, about using stem cells because there's a disease eradicated sure, through the stem cell. What about in Northern Africa where there's severe drought? Right. And through genet- benign genetic modification, not doing of of taking a similar grain. And, and what I'm talking to you is that what did Northern Africa do when they had droughts in the past? Probably they die. Grew, they grew millet. Famine. They grew millet. Okay, they grew millet too, but there was a great deal of well. Of, but you should say famine. okay, they grew millet. My point is that we have crops that are drought tolerant already. We have crops that have evolved for every place on earth to grow and thrive and provide for a sustainable cuisine. So you're yes. saying there's no need for genetic? I, I'm not saying there's no need because I I'll tell you why because. I don't want to be wrong about this in five years. And if they get this right, if they produce... For example, I was just in a debate about genetic modification with the writer Michael Spector from The New Yorker, who's quite... And he has this very strong argument that there, there are millions of children who are suffering from vitamin A deficiency, and there's this stuff called golden rice, which has been released. And, and, and it's been, you know, it's, it's the promise of it. Of course, I'm not hard-hearted. I, you know, I had children, you know, what he did is in front of you know, a couple hundred people turned to me and said, if your daughter was going blind, would you, feed her genetic, would you feed her vitamin A and rich genetically modified rice? So when you ask that question that way, of course, like you're, you're oh, crazy to say no. On the other hand, when you dig deep into it, as I said to him, you know, 10 years, they've shown that the children can't take up the vitamin A from the genetically modified rice because they don't have enough fat in their diet. So they're peeing out all the genetically modified vitamin A from this crop. And and my point is... So it's not been effective at all. It hasn't been effective at all, which is why it's, it's, it's still languishing. But Monsantos of the world have spent a lot of money and are going directly into your heartstrings to say all these... Children die. It's a way of introducing this technology through through hardship, and so I. Do you think I, they're wrong to try to find a vitamin why, A? The reason I don't want to say they're wrong is because I think there are a lot of well motivated people doing it. I've met them, yeah. and there are a lot of well motivated people doing it. I I think for the money and for the time and for the technological wherewithal that it's taken to do this, we could invest those billions of dollars, and they have been billions of dollars into creating distribution systems into these areas and crop rotations and agriculture expertise and nutrition and birth control in with one-tenth the horsepower, as in one-tenth the money, and gotten very good results. But there's no one to make a profit to do that. So that's my problem. You don't with think there's not profit in that? 
Well, ultimately there is, but there's... But we we have all these philanthropists, the Gates Foundation... The Gates Foundation is heavily invested in genetic modified. And why is that? Because, Because, you know, I'll I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because I was was at a conference where I was at at Davos and I was speaking to a room like the room we're in. I probably had as many people in my audience as sitting at this table, which is just you. Really? Yeah. And, and I finished my talk, and I went next door, and Gates was giving his talk, and there was probably 4,000 people there. It was just packed to the thing. And I heard him talking. He was talking about genetic modification and, and feeding the world to 9 billion people in 2050, and how we need it. And I was, at the end, he was taking questions, and I was raising my hands. Of course, I didn't get called on. And What would you have asked Well, I was saying, you know, I was saying to my wife, He's talking about these these genetically modified seeds, and my question is, the things that make these seeds run, this genetic modification, is is rain. You're giving a drought tolerant uh, uh, argument for genetic modification, but for the large part, genetically modified crops take a lot of rainfall. They take a lot of consistent weather patterns. When you have a genetically modified organism, so you need the right kind of weather patterns to make it because you're going for a single crop with a single characteristic. You need the right weather to, to, to make sure right, that character is right. a lot runs. of DNA characteristics. My point is, when you're a genetically modified crop, you don't have a diversity. You don't have a land race of those crops. You have one crop. You're going for a monoculture is what you're going for. Mm-hmm. And I turned to my wife and I said, you know, here we are. We're headed into this, this great unknown of the future where, where it's instability and weather patterns. Forget about climate change. Just we, weird weather is everywhere. Right. Forget about water. And what about fossil fuels? I mean, this mm-hmm. all takes fertilizer to grow these kind of crops mm-hmm. for genetic modification. We're talking about, you know, and what happens when the price of petroleum goes up? And, and so I was just like, I really want to. So I feel the answer. So we walk out of the thing and I was like talking about all these points I'm just talking to you about. And who walks in front of us? Bill Gates. Yeah. So what did you say? My wife, and so I was just like, well, like this. And he walked right by with his 10 handlers. And my, I feel this thing on my back, and my wife pushes me into it. <laughs> I flew into Bill Gates. And he stopped, and I said, Mr. Gates. And I was actually really just scared that I would wimp out in front of my wife, because we hadn't been married that long. And I, and I said, can I ask you a question? And for some reason, he stopped. And all of a sudden, there was like 50 people did like around us. No, no, are you kidding me, Dorothy? <laughs> are you kidding me? And, and so there's like this thing, I swear to God, it, was like, it felt like the lights you know, were shining down and everything mm-hmm. stopped. Mm-hmm. He said, yes. And I couldn't believe it stopped you know, in the middle of this big hall. And I said, can I ask a question? He says, yes, yes, yes. And all the handlers are like this, you know, like we gotta go. And I said, Mr. Gates, I'm really interested in all your technological solutions that you've just talked about. He says, yes, yes, yes. And I said, but what's gonna happen when, when these free ecological resources that are powering this stuff become more fraught or more expensive or less predictable. And he looked at me and there was a silence and he said, what the hell is a free ecological resource? <laughs> and so everyone like kind of looked at me and so I was like, water. I said, what? And I swallowed really hard because I was like, I was, I was just getting back to that. I feel like I'm sweating. And he said, oh, no, no, you don't understand technology. Let me tell you about drip irrigation. And he said, in the last 30 years, with the development of drip irrigation, we've cut water usage by 95% in almost every part of the world that's, that's utilized this technology. So we can, we, can, we can, in other words, what he was saying is we can invent technology to, to save the world, just as genetic modification is the argument for it. And, he wa- and, and, and I started to follow up, but he, he, he walked away. By the way, he went around the corner 
that very moment, literally that very moment, not the next day, not the next hour, he walked around the corner, met Melinda, Melinda, and donated uh, uh, $3 billion to malaria research, right? That was like the big announcement, right? It was uncanny. It was the largest donation ever to malaria research. It's not to say that Bill Gates is a bad guy. He's the very... But what I would have said to him had I had the follow-up was, you know, in Iowa... In 1965, there was no irrigation because the soils were organic. So when we were growing corn in Iowa, we were growing a lot of other crops because we needed to grow other crops to grow the corn. We didn't need to irrigate the land. And when we started growing only corn, we were forced into irrigation. So in other words, and I repeat this again, is the mindset, you ask me, well, why, why the Bill Gates of the world so fixated on GM crops? Because the mindset of the world, especially the Bill Gates of the world, is that technology will save us, that can save us. And so a technological problem like a GM crop that requires monoculture creates another problem, water shortages or excessive fossil fuels. So what do you do to that? You create another technological solution to solve a technological solution. It's nuts. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not say, speaking broadly against drip irrigation. Well, what are you speaking broadly against technology? I'm speaking no. I'm totally pro technology. Because know look at look at look at my look at yes. look at Barbara Wheat. You yeah. bred Barbara Wheat in four years. Our grandparents. How did you do that technologically? Through ma- that- mapping of the genome. We used genome mapping to identify. Uh, the genes which have clusters that represent flavonoids and flavors. So we were looking so at they, that. Were they using the microscope to see the DNA? They were using more than microscope. Yes. This is the highest technology possible. I'm all for that. So is this? More but we were doing advanced, it in service. Is this more advanced technology than GMO technology? No, 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 not at all. It's a different technology. GMO technology is really advanced in the sense that you can take a, a DNA from another species and insert it into a species. But you're doing that too. No, Would not. you look okay. at a barley thing and say it has, or what has, what plant has the greatest drought resistance? And let me see if I can genome map it and and cross. Sure, it. but not cross it with. A, I wouldn't. I would cross it. I would cross a wheat with a wheat. And I told you that Aragon three has the qualities of barley because it had to. It evolved in southern Spain. There's no rainfall. Right. So it has that same genetic gene. So I would, I would agree with you. That's a better way to the, go. Yeah, and the problem is, I don't. Nobody. The problem, the advantage, is I don't own that. That's for you, because no, you don't patent that. There's no patent. It's not original design. When you take a barley gene, now that's original design, and that's when we get into this problem of ownership. So it is. It is. It's. It's a very. I see your point of trying to decipher the argument, but it's yeah. very hard to decipher it when you when you can take a species, a gene from another species, and insert it. Oop, you have a patent, and when you have a patent, you own it. And when you own it, it means you sell it. And when you sell it, and it's effective. And, and they have, at least in the short term, been quite effective in terms of yield, in terms of doing what they say they're going to do. If you're in a farming community where several people are adopting a technology that's increasing their harvest by 30% and utilizing less natural resources by 50% and they're leapfrogging ahead, you exi- don't have the luxury to not adopt that technology because you're, you'll be out of business, literally. Literally out of business. And that's the problem. That's what we're seeing with all these technologies is that people, they either have to buy into it or get the hell out because... That's like any industry. It's like any industry. It's It's disruptive. It's disruptive. The problem is we're talking about our food supply, not widgets. 
and and what what is what what has been shown, and this is just very small research because genetic modification is such a new thing, is that these modifications don't work for very long. The nature adapts; they overcome because, in large part, they're trying to grow them in monocultures, and nature doesn't work in monocultures. So when you take BT, which, as you know, for organic farmers, is a natural uh, uh, bacteria that 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 is in nature that organic farmers are allowed to spray on a corn that's that's sick with a fungus. You spray BT; it's the last result, and it's totally organic and it's totally natural. The Monsanto took that BT gene and inserted it in their corn, and everyone said, "Well, what's wrong with that? It's a natural occurring bacteria." And we're going to insert it into the corn genome, and we're going to grow this corn. And, and God, the effects were unbelievable. For the first five years, yields increased by 30%, and, and less chemicals were used because you have the BT inserted. And what happened? Very quickly, because the BT is there for the entire time that the corn is growing, because it's one type of corn, nature adapted. And now those BT genes in corn aren't working. And you're getting super weeds, pig weeds, and things that Midwestern farmers have never seen before. That's just happening in the first five years. So that's one of the effects of genetic modification. You can't point to a lot because this stuff is so new. Right. So we don't know where nature is right. going to compensate. It could be 50 years. That's right. But the scary thing is, so what? So what's Monsanto's answer to that? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, what is their answer? The answer to that, we've just released the new, new BT corn. Right. Now you have to buy the new second, corn. The yeah. If you want the old one, okay, but it, you're, it's, it's, we have a more effective one. It's like by upgrading your car. Well, for a farmer, you have to upgrade now. You're in. You're in. You're dialed in. You're locked yeah, and loaded. Because you're you're selling. You know. Yeah, and you're selling to the at this at, at, at a price. It's a commodity. Exactly. And, and you're selling to the elevator that's buying that variety. And yeah. it's a whole thing. It's like yeah. you know. It get you have no choice. That's okay. where it gets. Right, so that, those are my arguments. We have to take a break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy Ken Hamilton talking today to Dan Barber. Okay, Dan. Yeah. Let's talk about disruption, future of food. Um, Last night I was with somebody fascinating, a man called Shen Tong, who is uh, one of the founders of Foodex, which is a quarter of a billion dollar fund to. Um, really fuel accelerators, uh, which are groups of people who will take the, some of the problems we've been talking about and mm-hmm. saying, what is the alternative to GMOs? Mm-hmm. And what he said to me um, was the food industry is one of the last industries that has not been disrupted. Mm-hmm. And it, because there's so many corporations out there, they're the innovators. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing it at their own pace and they're doing it the, the way they want to do it. Now, I'm not passing any judgment on yeah, that. Yeah, but he said their fund is really to get people with alternative ideas and to fuel it, just like any accelerated fund, mm-hmm. you know, a hackathon of taking right. people with good ideas and, and giving them seed money. Got it. So uh, very exciting, very exciting and saying, okay, where are the future solutions? And invest in them. 
And they'll invest in them. Right. They've got a quarter of a billion dollars, to, and they're looking for people. So out, anyone out there, get yeah. in contact with me. I'm I'll raising get you my hands. Well, you know what? He said to me, oh, my God, he's my hero. <laughs> you. So <laughs> I'm going to get Can I get, get a slice together. of the pie? Yeah, yes. please. So, um, so something. Where, where do you think, other than the GMO, the fight of the third plate, I know in five years we're not going to be talking about soil and third plate. I know you so well. And where do you? Th- where is now the other aspects of food or the world in general? Doesn't even have to be in the food space that you think needs disruption, that you think needs further exploration, and where we're going to be challenged. And in five years, we may be sitting here. I don't know if in five years I'll challenge you. I don't know if five years we're. We probably won't be talking about the third plate. I'll agree with that part. But I don't know that we won't be talking about soil because I think. Wes Jackson, the the great agriculture speaker and and, and geneticist, said something very smart to me when I was interviewing the book. He said, you know, we are at the point with soil that we were with climate change in about the 1970s, early 1970s. We're just starting to realize the the magnitude of our problem. It will become more mainstream. It's going to become more mainstream. Okay, so, so in five we'll years, talking, okay, okay, okay. So we'll be talking you about won't be there. Okay, You're okay, going to be ahead right. of the curve. Okay, so yeah. we're, I'm asking, I'm trying to get a preview of what what's what are the other challenges that you see that you don't have time to right now to yeah. drill down on? It's a great question, and I like it's a really great question, and I I, I don't know that I have a. a, a uh, you know, an appropriate response, except to say this in sort of general terms. I'm not copying out of it, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm only saying it's hard to define, which is that which is that I think somehow we need to figure out a way to describe ecological functions, uh, ec- ecological functioning, healthy ecology functionings in ways that are are clear and and respectful of their brilliance. So a Bill Gates to dial back, not to pick on Bill Gates, uh, is is the quintessential um, you know characterization of brilliance for us. Steve Jobs, I mean, there's a lot of them in the world, uh, uh, but we we look to them as brilliant because they create things that make the world easier, or they create things for which we can. Not to say we can't wrap our mind around what they invent, but we, we, we understand them and we use them and they have applications for our life that are readily available to our understanding. The problem is that, that healthy ecologies, biological systems, don't work like that. They're much more complicated and they're much more fluid and in flux, and they're much more uh, indicative of a particular place, which is to say they're, they're, they're so different in every region of the world that you're in and every region of this country that you're in. So to figure out and to celebrate and to understand people who, who understand those functionings and how they work, how they're interconnected and support each other and, and are cross-purposes and are inefficient. Bio- biological systems are inherently inefficient. They're not, they're not computer systems. They're not efficient. They're inefficient. They have many uh, uh, crossovers uh, because disasters are inevitable in nature and you need resiliency. And resiliency is when you have, uh, when you have inefficiencies. That's the definition of resiliency in farming. So my, in the future, I would like to become better acquainted with what is what is the what is nature's functioning and how can we describe it better and how can we understand it better how can we promote it and I don't think it's through interventions of technology because there's a great quote from someone who's, who who helped write um, um, 
what the hell's the book? I'm just forgetting the name of the book. Uh, but he said nature is not uh, uh, nature is not more complex uh, than we think. It's more complex than we can think. And that that like is the right way to think about this. Is that we really need to to create a language for the work of of. The, the kind of people that see the connections between the, the whole picture, which to me is ecology. That's why I keep pointing to ecology. It's not farming and, you know, it's not agriculture. It's not biological. It's, not, it's how this whole thing fits together. And I'll only end this, this question by, by, with a positive by saying that for right now anyway, I think one way to dial into that is through great food because really, truly great flavor only arises out of the interconnectedness of a whole place. It's not about one particular seed or a particular piece of soil. It's about everything. It's about the whole farm. It's about a whole ecosystem that's producing it for truly great food. So one way that we can understand or appreciate or celebrate a healthy ecological system is through a great plate of food. That's a wonderful way to be in the world. We can be, we don't have to be farmers. We can be urbanites and and, and we can connect to the natural world through, through great tasting food. I think that's a very inspired message that I took away from the writing. And it's so personal. And it's so everyone, personal, yeah. yeah. And it's and with the nice thing about it is that it's not like the environmental movement. You know, you're not asking people to give up something for some greater pleasure. You know, that's so it's so that's the kind of thing that lasts about as long as it might come to tomatoes. I don't know. Well, let me I okay, let me shoot some I think what we're let talking me shoot about some ideas at yeah. you and I just yeah. want your reaction. Yeah. 3D food. Yeah. Well I don't know. What is it? I don't know. I've read a little bit about it. What do I know? I'm no expert. It's just like... Do you think it'll be a fad? Do you think it'll be a trend? Do you think I, it'll be something here to I'm stay? not smart enough to know that. I only question the resources, the intellectual firepower, and the economic uh, resources that are required to produce that kind of technology could be better served uh, in producing really delicious food. Um, so... If they end up producing something just like the GMOs that actually taste good, mm-hmm. then I will eat my hat and say this is this is something to really look at. But until they produce something really delicious and can repeat it again and again and again, I don't know that I'm interested. Okay, I want to ask you something about professional kitchens. Yeah. I walk in your kitchen and I just my heart sinks. Uh, I see the discipline. Yeah. I see everyone really um, in pristine whites. You know, very clean. Yeah. You know, watching a chef work clean is so, is a beauty. Yeah. It's, it's it's beautiful, and and every it, it works like clockwork down here. By the way, I feel a little sick that you're saying that because I'm because there's just a photo shoot being done right now as we're speaking of a week of my aprons. And, and at the like end of the shift, at the at the end of the shift, yeah, and the yeah. seven days, and so it's a chronicle of my week in the kitchen, and they're dirty. They're really dirty. And like, I looked at them all, all displayed and I was just starting to think like, wow, this is not, is the, it's a question actually. I don't, I don't know that I came down to a conclusion yet. It's still new in my mind, but it's like, you know, when I trained in France, the chef didn't have a speck of anything. No. Um, anywhere, just as you're saying. And it wasn't until I really came to New York, came to America. I came to New York and I went into the kitchen of Boulay and I remember opening the door and there was Boulay and it's just his jacket was smattered with everything and tomato sauce here and beets were here. And I was just like, you know, that's the kitchen I want to work in because he was really cooking yeah. and, and tasting and and, and like that's what I've adopted, I think, because of that, that memory. That was sort of a late inning revelation because well, until that moment... 
it was how clean was your outfit, and you know that was a sign of your discipline. Well, there's there's perfect, but there's the new the new um, there are new kitchens today. Yeah, where, where no one's wearing chef's coats. <laughs> exactly, and tattoos. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And and you know all kinds of piercings. Yeah, and, because you know in the traditional. Um, French kitchens, let's just say, you weren't allowed to wear any, you know, right. and of short hair and yeah, all of course. this. Yeah. So, do you feel that there's any trade-off there? Do you feel that, or it's just uh, a new? Well, there's trade-off in all, every one of these things, but I, I, I think I probably share your sentiment. You know, just like my grandfather, you know, winced when I walked into the room with sneakers. You know, and 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 you know, my hair wasn't combed, kind of thing. You know, it's like there's there's. Is there, you know, is there room in the world of cooking for for less discipline, at least in appearances? Um, is I think there, there probably is, and do I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't love it. I don't look at it, and like, I don't look at those pictures of those kitchens or walk in and think, "Wow, that's impressive." But to the extent that I can have an open mind about it, I think you know, liberalizing some of this stuff and, and allowing people who come into those restaurants with these open kitchens see people who are a little bit more relaxed about what they're doing, uh, at least in terms of dress, is is probably not a bad thing. Um, because the world of cooking, at least high-end cooking, has been so regimented and, and disassociated from the everyday world of eating that I think we do need to break down those barriers. Wolfgang Puck did that with an open kitchen. This is the right. modern iteration of that. Right. And, you know, some people were really offended by the open kitchens in the same way that we're a little bit offended by the, by the tattooed and the, and the T-shirt-wearing chef. But I don't know, ultimately, if it's such a bad thing for the overall, which is that we really need to, to cook more and be inspired by these kitchens these chefs. So, um, you are, and don't deny it, you you are a celebrity chef in that you are very well known, you're covered in the press, all that. You're one of the few in the world that didn't get there by the TV network, <laughs> you know, today. Um, you're, you've gone, you got there the old-fashioned way, you it's know. It's no good on TV, that's why. <laughs> but, so, let me ask you, how hard is it you know, when you started out to be a successful chef and break away from the pack, you know, because everybody wants to be, yeah. how hard is it today? Is it is it harder to be a chef today than when you started out? Hard to be well-known. To be well-known or even to get a restaurant to do, you know, to express yourself. Let's say that. I remember when I was uh, uh, a line cook. I don't think I'd opened Blue Hill. I was a line cook and I heard Thomas Keller uh, speak and he and someone asked him a similar question and he said I feel bad for up and coming chefs today because um, while I'm completely impressed with their their knowledge and their passion and their you know there are the, it, it's it, the 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 the, um, the ability to raise money and to open restaurants is becoming increasingly more difficult and I feel for these chefs who have who have put in their time and have the kind of expertise that that would make them great chefs. Um, and so, do I do I share his sentiment now, twenty plus years later, a little bit? But I also I also see the world of interest in food, good food, just exploding. exploding. I was just in Cleveland, Ohio, you know. The energy, the, just the sheer amount of people who came to this talk about the third plate, and the people who are doing, and then going to these restaurants that are that are doing this incredible food, casual and fun and approachable, but 
and they were wearing the t-shirts and had tattoos. But the product that came out of the kitchen was phenomenal. I have nothing against yeah, yeah, the yeah, t-shirts no, I know, and I know, tattoos. I, just, I, just, I have people okay. say to me, oh, you know, today's generation doesn't work as hard. They're not I as serious. In the school, I mean, you have our students yeah, here, right, right, for the farm yeah. to table program. I don't program. see that. I don't see that. They People are, say that they, every generation. They say that every generation, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I, but I, I find them as hardworking, yeah. disciplined. Yeah. But I just wondered if there was any, you know, if somebody shows up with long hair, yeah. tattoos, and lots of piercings, do you hire them right away? You do. <laughs> I, I, I mean, does it, that's all. You look at my kitchen. That's all my kitchen. That's my entire kitchen. Not the long hair, but the, that's my entire kitchen. New York, everybody. Everybody. So I, if I was discriminating in, in that sense, I wouldn't. To the last question. You have a daughter now. Yes. What are your hopes for the future? Not you know, for her being emblematic of young children today. What's your What's your hope for the future, and what's your fear? For the future. For her. For her. Because now I think it brings a different perspective to you. Yes, but are you talking about for food in general, for the youth, or are you talking about for my daughter specifically? No, for your daughter specifically, you know. For my daughter's we, generation. Yeah, her generation. I mean, yeah. we can't talk, I mean, we have obesity, we have disease. I mean, that's outside of it. You have a daughter, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what is she going to have to deal with when she's 40? Yeah. And what do, what do I hope she's going to find what she's and that's realistic to find. I think we're headed into to to a generation and I don't know if it's our generation or my daughter's or my daughter's daughter. Biologically speaking by the way, that is a ridiculous distinction to make. Biologically, you know, that's a blip in time, right? I mean, yes, that, right, you know, the, those few years are nothing, right? right? It's nothing. So, at some point there's a coming to Jesus about how we're producing food in this country, especially, but but increasingly throughout the world, which is the carrying capacity, which is a nice way of saying the earth cannot afford to produce food this way, and we we can only force it for so long. Whether we force it for another hundred years or not, I don't know. But it's we're coming to that moment, and that's a moment when those free ecological services, all the services that we don't count in our breadbasket to the world, that are essentially free. Uh, that are going to become much more expensive, more fraught, and, and, and just plain old breakdown. Uh, we're seeing that in soil. We're seeing that in, in, in environmental functioning everywhere. Uh, and it's only going to be exacerbated. We sort of know that. But my question is, are we going to use this period, meaning starting now or starting whenever the sustainability movement really kicked in, are we going to use this time frame to enter into this next Period of agriculture and of, of human history, gracefully. You know, are we going to to figure out ways to to eat a diet that does not expect a seven ounce plate of protein uh, twice a day, seven days a week? And are we going to be able to to understand healthy e- ecological functionings, even if we aren't a farmer, even if we're not in the scientific world? Um, are we going to be able to recognize what's a healthy? Ecology. Can we use this time effectively to transition to the next era and eat deliciously? And, I, you know, that's, I think, the challenge. That's why I cite sort of in the third plate. It's like, you know, that's the challenge. Do we do it now or is it going to be forced on us? And, and I would like to think that we, us, me and you and all the chefs and educators are thinking about this transition. We're the bridge. 
mm-hmm. and and do we help instruct, not scare, but help inspire a different way of eating for the future that is as delicious and nutritious as it could possibly be, uh, but that we start now before serious deprivation. I mentioned the soil crisis, eighteen twenties, is like the closest thing that I see I see possible in our generation. Um, and I would hate to think that my daughter would suffer through a period like that without being prepared for it. So that's my hope for, for her generation, that we can, we can be leaders and, and, and inspire a different way of eating that is, that is delicious and, 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 and delightful um, to help this, this very rough transition that I see coming in the future. When? I don't know. But it's, it's sometime in, in, in our children's lifetime. Uh, or grandchildren's lifetime, and that we ought to be very prepared for. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. Uh, thank you. Right. That was fun. Thank you, and I want to just thank Robin Cohen and Jack Inslee, my producers, and we'll Robin. see you next time. Yeah, Robin. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>